Welcome to the Let's Talk Energy podcast from EnergyNet. This series was recorded at the Africa Energy Forum 2023 in Nairobi, Kenya. Join us for this and other episodes as we talk to the industry players, stakeholders, and rising stars of Africa's energy sector. Hello, uh, my name is John Marks. I'm Editorial Director of African Energy. I'm delighted to be here talking to the African Legal Support Facility, Gadi, old friend. And we're going to discuss not some generalities, I think, this morning. We're actually going to be discussing some specifics, some future issues, and possibly we may find out whether Gadi can persuade me to be uh, a hydrogen enthusiast as opposed to being rather a skeptic. Um, so, the facility is always very busy, and you're doing a lot of stuff that is pushing forward and allowing operators, particularly supporting governments, to actually get quite sophisticated deals away. Um, exactly. But in addition, you're also looking at some of the newer technologies, and I think we agreed that we'd, we'd start with that. Mm -hmm. So, why should we be dis starting by discussing green hydrogen as opposed to, say, solar and battery, which you're also doing? Exactly. Um, thank you, John. So, as you know, we are always like, advising um, African government with quite challenging projects. By definition, projects on this continent are having some more difficulties just because of the financing, because of some of the challenges that these economies face. But on top of it, they're also facing the energy transition change, and, and they have to adapt to the new technologies. So what the facility is trying to do um, is not to only provide support for the conventional project, but also help countries having... Um, to be a little bit more bold with respect to new technologies and the opportunities that they can bring. Because there is a lot of potential for the continent with what is coming and how the change is structuring the new energy landscape. Um, the fact that we're going for more decentralized um, energy system is actually very good for, for the continent. But these technology might be a bit more pricey or the government is not necessarily ready to uh, to invest in the advisory fee fees of structuring these deals because they're not sure they're going to be successful. So the facility comes in and provides some funding for these projects, uh, often on a grand, grand uh, basis or uh, recoverable, but only if the project reaches financial close, which will give it to some level of, of certainty. So we've when, been, when you're talking about new technologies here, yeah. do you want to list them? Yeah, um, because it's quite interesting because one person's new technology exactly. is an older technology yeah. or, or not a technology at all. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'll give a, an example of a few years ago, yeah. which kind of is the mindset that we applied to green hydrogen. So a few years ago, uh, we were approached by the Seychelles to help them with a floating solar tender. Yeah. Uh, now, floating solar is quite accepted as, uh, as a way to provide energy to the grid. Um, but at the time, it was still something quite new, especially when you were talking about um, solar on the sea, which has corrosion, which has some uh, challenges. You have the wave, the tide. 
um, that you have to take into consideration. So what we've done is we um, we selected, retained a technical advisor that started looking at the technology and whether it was feasible for the Seychelles at a price that makes sense, right? Because we talk about energy, but it's cheap energy that any economy uh, needs, or at the very least cheaper than their current cost. Um, so the, the technical advisor looked at the, the project and started realizing that actually component of the technology or the specification of that project were already being used uh, in large scale. So corrosion was something that a solar panel on boats were uh, quite comfortable with. Um, the, the, the solution for the stability of the plant on moving water was already um, developed for freshwater projects. And kind of through this, this analysis came to the conclusion that the, the tender could yield decent um, You would put pricing. the floating solar behind a coral reef, would you, in that Indian Ocean way, so you didn't get the full effect? Exactly. See. Exactly. So the, it was in the lagoon in that case. Yeah. Um, but what was really interesting for the facility is that we realized that for the seashells to have come to a conclusion that this project was feasible by themselves, they would have invested um, quite a bit of funding in advisory fees yes. and although it's not a huge amount it's al always really hard to explain politically if you put advisory fees for a project that ultimately doesn't uh, get to, to financial close. Yes. So we, since then we've been trying to do that, that to take that role and we had a, a project in the coal bed methane uh, field in Botswana which is uh, the gathering of, of the, the methane that is emitted by coal deposits, uh, which is ultimately good because it doesn't go in the atmosphere, so you're, you're capturing that before. Um, and uh, another project we looked into was a deep ocean water application in Mauritius. So these are kind of the example. Would, uh, how does that work? So this one is still ongoing, but we were helping uh, Mauritius look at whether um, a large-scale deep ocean water uh, application could be a viable option for them to reduce their cost of um, air conditioning during the, the summer. Because of course, with those island states, it's true that they're, they're even more diesel dependent than, exactly. uh, than very many others. Yes. Yes. Seychelles was, if I'm right, was completely diesel dependent for a no, time they, until they, they do got have, some solar in. Yeah, they have some solar, they have some, some wind. Mauritius is not diesel dependent yes, they, they have a bit of biomass. coal yep. a bit of biomass a bit of solar now um, but they do had uh, have a lot of coal and ultimately um, you had an opportunity to reduce the cost which is what you're so, so basically you're providing by providing the legal services and that framework you're kind of helping to de-risk the politics of the project for the government involved and, exactly. and allowing them to to think more imaginatively. Exactly. So we're de-risking the development phase, and we provide legal uh, services always, but we also provide sometimes financial and technical advisors to complete. A lawyer is <laughs> is just a, a part of every project, right? Well, so as you a head of a company, I, well, I always know also a lawyer is one of the costlier parts of the uh, <laughs> exactly, machine. Exactly, exactly. So that's what we've done uh, until, until recently, and then a year ago we were approached by Namibia, uh, to support them with their green hydrogen initiative uh, and I think a few months after by Egypt as well. So we've been dipping our toes into a, a new field and it was a, an amazing experience um, just 
because of their learning, but also to understand how this opportunity could be transformational for, for the continent. Um, the, something that has been uh, a great challenge in the electricity sector on the African continent is always that the project needs to be banked on the back of the local economy. The interesting thing about green hydrogen is that it has an exporting component. So you are stimulating the African economies, if it works, with uh, export goods, which is really, really uh, interesting for any economy. And at the same time, these projects of the skills we the scale we anticipate them to be will have so much surplus of a cheap electricity because that electricity is the production assets are constructed for the production of, of uh, hydrogen, but the way they are, they are uh, designed, they will always be to some level, some degree oversized. So there will be a significant surplus for the grids uh, across across the continent. You can use these projects to not only increase the revenue of the economies, but also solve some of their deficit uh, with respect I to th electricity. I think, I think electricity. this is a big issue in these projects' messaging, because looked at from abroad and indeed on the ground, people could turn around and say, okay, you're looking to develop 60 megawatts of solar. Um, it's going to eventually turn into hydrogen and be sailed away in a ship to Germany or, or, or the US or, or, or wherever. And yes, the government's going to earn money, and we hope it's going to use that money well. But we still doesn't really help us with our domestic energy deficits. I think that, that point is really interesting. Do you think people emphasize that point enough? Because I don't hear that in the green hydrogen discourse. I mean, if you go to Namibia, you will hear about it, because that's mm -hmm. one of their uh, main argument why it makes sense. And you're talking about 60 megawatt, but these projects to be viable, they're talking uh, sorry, about... gigawatt. Sorry, yeah, gigawatt. Excuse me, yes. so I'm, 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 I'm still living in the past. Yeah. Uh, maybe not 60 gigawatt, but about 6 to 7... Some we've actually done studies of people who are looking at 60 yeah. gigawatts. I'm not surprised. Uh, where, where you have to actually take half the continent to cover it with panels, but hey. Yeah, maybe not half of the continent, because no. that, that would be an issue in itself. But <laughs> j just a, a six, to seven mega, six to seven gigawatt project is, is a huge investment, and, and the surplus of it would, would change the electricity supply dynamic of most countries on, on this continent. Well, so Remembering, say, that Nigeria of 220 million people at the moment just about can't generate five, five gigawatts. Yeah. That puts it into real exactly. perspective. Now, with with green hydrogen and other things, of course, it really is the early stage. So, as sort of Africa's lawyer, if you like, are you in a you're in a situation where where basically you're having to help draft legislation because you're coming into um, a sort of a void. Yes, so that's the interesting thing with um, specifically the Namibian projects that we had to uh, work without a legislative framework. Um, obviously, many of the aspects of these projects have already are covered by some other legislation, uh, but not always drafted with green hydrogen in mind. Actually, 
almost never drafted. But would it actually be like petroleum legislation or things like that? Because you're, you're, you're producing something and putting it in a boat. Yeah, for example, or some of the labor laws, safety laws, environmental laws, uh, some of the chemical um, product handling laws. So you, you have many um, and you have to first make sure that these laws make sense for green hydrogen project, that they, they provide the right incentives, uh, or you are building a framework that will actually focus on green hydrogen projects and will kind of gather everything into one is it, uh, piece. Is it, is it actually in this context, is it advisable for government, say, to gather up what legislation that they've got to say we can use the Petroleum Act, we can use the Energy Act, we can use the environmental laws to promote our, our green hydrogen project? Or is it actually a, a case that it might may be easier if they just put together all the best case examples into a green hydrogen law and get it through <coughs> and the legislature and the process as quickly as possible? Uh, as a lawyer, I think both, both approaches work. It's just a decision of the government. Obviously, as a developer, you, you'd love to have one law to look at. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but the reality is, as long as it's clear what applies and what does not apply, and the government can issue guidance as to, uh, with, with like kind of a summary of which law applies to what, um, you sometimes are better to work within the current legislation and add what is missing instead of re uh, drafting a full framework that might have unintended consequences. So the, both approaches are, are have some some advantages and and some some downsides. Um, but yeah, I, at this moment, what we're doing in in, uh, in Namibia is is the gap analysis um, uh, stage. So the World Bank has uh, provided um, some support for a gap analysis. They presented it, I think, this week actually. Um, so that will be kind of the, the foundation of the legislative efforts, which will involve not only um, looking at the report, but also starting to take decisions. Because what is interesting is you do see a bit of um, thinking and literature and some legislative framework in developed countries, yes. but you need to consider what is what is the objective of an african country especially when that that country has made it clear that they want a big part of that production to be for export um, so you you're not dealing with only one jurisdiction you're dealing with at least two and sometimes multiple jurisdictions because you want to make sure that that molecule that you're producing is certified for namibia but also certified for other countries and respects the laws of other countries and it could be quite counterintuitive so until recently if you would provide um, really strong tax incentive for your project you might be disqualified or penalized if you export it on the european market because they do have laws about making sure that products are not over subsidized in uh, the exporting countries yes. to not have unfair competition so there is some level of analysis to make sure you're finding the right balance uh, there is also a choice because the europeans are feeling their way towards this even i mean if you have uber uber enthusiasts like the germans or whatever but they're still 
there's feeling yeah. the way exactly um, and that's why you need to work with the exporting countries as you develop the project and it, it's really good for for international trade relations uh, and also for um, yeah deepening the trade between the continent and some of, of these countries with with a molecule which it, it's not the same as a mineral right it has already some form of um, manufacturing or transformation process yes. in the case of, of Namibia it will be a green ammonia um, at least for the first project so there is a full industry that will be built around these kind of, of I was going projects to say, so because so, you've got the the green hydrogen molecule gh2 and then you've got um the green ammonia um is 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 that in a, a legal and policy context like the green ammonia coming and then people are talking about further down the line green steel are, are these all different concepts that have to be treated differently or um is, is it basically if you get green hydrogen right then you're going to get green ammonia okay green steel no you 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 don't have to treat them differently but you have to keep them in mind and i think it's really hard to to have everything already planned at this stage with so yes. so many unknowns so you need some level of flexibility in your framework that will allow you to adapt as you go along but um obviously you should they, they, they typically don't call it just green hydrogen they will call it green hydrogen and derivative uh, law or legislation so it's already pretty clear that you need to cater for some of the um, transformation of the molecules so and ammonia methanol uh, there's a, a few, there's a few uh, yeah. others no and it's really important that as you develop the framework you develop the expertise in country right because it's something to to have a law but you need people to implement it and to implement such complex piece of legislation you need uh, someone who really understands the objectives behind some of these um, because many of these projects particularly in Africa as we've observed it are very big developer led and these are pretty muscular enterprises that yeah. are working on this yeah no definitely which does open the way to some of the problems that we've seen with older technologies yeah no definitely definitely now it's it's a, it's a very interesting field to be in at the moment and and really uh, it gets me optimistic uh, because okay. if this works it really solves a few of the problems that we're currently seeing it also is really rare that you work on a project where the interest of the the population the national population are fully aligned with the interest of the regional population because the surplus of electricity is actually expected to change the the supply um, the electricity supply in the full region right because right now namibia is importing electricity and at some point uh, i mean with one project technically they would not have to so they were freeing some supply for other countries in, in south africa and with two and three projects they might all be able to contribute to the supply of other countries mm -hmm. so you have the the national the regional interest and the global interest because these projects would help fighting the climate change so it's really really interesting to see everything being aligned and, and so many people supporting an initiative that would be beneficial for everyone so it's a compelling argument mm -hmm. i mean the not necessarily quoting Namibia as an example, but around 
governments have major capacity problems. I mean, one thing that I, I've noticed in some places that if suddenly there's a huge excitement about one particular project, be it green hydrogen, be it a, be it a gas pipeline, mm -hmm. that what is relatively constrained internal domestic capacity of governments, suddenly everyone's working on that. Mm -hmm. And people aren't working on the, the, the kind of the other basics. Um, is, is, is there a capacity problem here? That you yeah, I mean, obviously you need some level of support. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard question because there is already a, a problem of capacity across the continent, right? It's yeah. always for government, is it's much more what do we focus on? And I have a tendency to think that you should focus on things that have the most potential for reward, right? And, and that ultimately are setting you up for future, the future. So for me, the capacity argument is more a question that the DFI should look at and provide the government with the expertise and uh, uh, the advisors that they need while we keeping the ownership of this venture within the, the, the country. But if, if you look at Egypt, because we're, we're working in yeah. Egypt as well, Egypt is taking a, a, a different approach, and I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a bad one, um, where they are giving a lot more autonomy to the private sector to define the way they will develop these projects. And they, but they have open it to many more projects. Well, that's the interesting thing, because yeah. they, they've genuinely opened it up to competition, and yeah. sort of dog-eat-dog, dog, you mm. might even say. Come and I would not say that, but no, there is I definitely, uh, I believe, over 15 con uh, companies yeah. working yeah, on projects. We've been projects. observing this very closely, and it, it's a very, I think it's a very interesting model, because it's saying, okay, you come with the best financing model and time frame for doing this, and you win. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's actually what business is about. It is. But the key difference that you have to keep in mind is that Egypt is a big country with a lot of already built infrastructure. Yes. So they can absorb more than one country, sorry, one project developing at the same time. In Namibia, you need to sequence that quite carefully because if you have too many projects developing at the same time you will have infrastructure constraints and then you you will you will not affect the viability of one project you will affect the viability of all projects at the same time create issues in financing them and things like that so there is there is um different parameters that explain different approaches. So I really don't think there is a better approach depending no. on which one you look. You need to carry it or to adapt it to your... can absorb. Exactly. They've got absorptive capacity for projects, yeah. but I mean, not all of the ones they've announced. No, but their thinking is some will make it through, some won't, yeah. which is a fair thinking when you have a bit more bandwidth. But they wouldn't... They would have the, 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 the place and the... the the ability to run more than one project at the same time. Um, so, so their risk is, is mitigated uh, in, in this case. And I think they're looking at the ones that will move forward the, qu the quicker and, and these ones will, will, uh, will be pushed and have the proper incentives and things like that. Right. You mentioned, sorry, you mentioned regional projects. And there has been some progress with regional electricity interconnections, mm -hmm. not perhaps as fast as we'd all like, but faster than we've seen mm -hmm. for several decades. 
And we've got, I mean, the discourse that you hear here at the AEF, the Minister's turning around, of course we must have integration. Um, from a legal perspective and the sort of um, support that, that governments are looking for from yourselves, um, is, are there big developments in that area at the moment or, or is it going on sort of business as usual? No, there, there, there is some activity that I have not seen before in the transmission space. Yeah. Uh, it's quite still early stage in the sense that it's starting to change. Um, the model is starting to change and, and the way of thinking about these connectors, so the, the transmission line that go across countries uh, and, and even national transmission line it is changing. A lot more room for private participation, a lot more willingness of private participation because for some reason that was not as interesting before uh, um, for, for private developers. And they're, of course, having to change the law to do that. Exactly. Often they have to change the law. But I think there is a realization that there is a bit of a chicken and egg uh, problem at the moment where you don't necessarily want to build a generation asset if you are not sure that the transmission assets will be there and vice versa. So yeah. someone needs to take a, a stand and it's much easier to have the private sector fully leading the generation asset side. So you have key players and, and governments that are really gathering around finding a model for transmission. And these especially the, the cross-border transmissions, because then they allow more flexibility in, in, uh, in the full market, the regional market, specifically uh, talking about uh, southern uh, Af African market, yeah. which, were, which has a really uh, deep deficit in supply so, and a lot of potential for uh, cross-country trade in, in a much deeper it's, way. If I may, so... It's it's interesting. Some we've we've been doing some research and work on this, and the come to the conclusion in places that if someone wants now to to has a largish generation project, that they're going to have to go and possibly build their own transmission. But but the system doesn't allow that, and of course the conventional wisdom that that the industry has had for decades is that transition is uh, a natural monopoly of government yeah and that do you see that breaking down it's uh, yeah it's definitely being taught over um but the thing is you have to 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 keep in mind that transmission needs to keep some level of government support yes. and the reason why is because the land issue is much uh, more important in a transmission asset you're going across long distances yes. you have to deal with several different types of communities um, so if the government is not there alongside you to guide you even lead the way for this aspect of the project you're, you're it's it's not going to be um feasible and bankable so and i i do believe that's the reason why transmission assets have been historically kept within the that's a realm very good point. I mean, yeah. we're in we're in kenya where i know uh Kuchako, the transmission company have a really supple um extremely informed and of course local mm -hmm. uh, team working on community engagement precisely around those issues exactly which are a large international developer would find problematic. It's, yeah. it's something that, viewed from outside, that we don't 
probably put enough into our analysis. Actually. Exactly, exactly. So now I think everybody agrees that we need to do something about it, but I, th I think also everybody agrees that everybody is needed in that process. So even if you're doing transmission asset fully privately funded, you still need the government to help you set up the program uh, for, for uh, buying the land and, and making sure that there is a buy-in from the community uh, and choose tr and the, the, the tracing like carefully to make sure you're you're respecting a lot of the also future development economic development of the country you don't want to have a line that goes through a national park for example and things like that so and that's that's also actually an, an, an issue around the green hydrogen because we are talking of these massive exactly. massive solar and wind exactly facilities so you need governments the authorities a lot of stakeholder buy-in which mm -hmm. no matter how many international consultants can be brought in or yeah. whatever you can't it's going to be difficult e to do yeah exactly and that's why you see a few countries that have the potential but it's going to be much more dif difficult and i don't want to name them <laughs> uh, because uh, yeah they, they i do want to leave the opportunity to each country to try to 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 Absolutely. make that industry happen but for example, uh, Mauritania, um, uh, some parts of, of Egypt have a lot less people in these well, areas. These are the wide open spaces. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Namibia is, has a lot of gov government-owned land, so they can lease that. Uh, yeah, so it kind of depends which country, but the land aspect is definitely a factor you need to look into really quickly as a developer and as a country, you need to provide a solution for if you really want your, that industry to lift up. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a big factor. It's a big factor in for any kind of projects that take space and, and should be carefully designed to, to make sure that the population is not left out because if you're displacing significant uh, portion of your population for, for this type of project, it's not going to work. You need the buying of everyone. It needs to be, um, to be beneficial uh, for, for, for most of the population. We, we should move on quite quickly, but on one question on the transmission. So from a government perspective, People in the market, in, in this, the communities that are here at AEF, clearly there's a lot of interest in the potential for investing in transmission. And there are a few players that are here, you know, the companies Gridworks, a couple of others, who are looking at that kind of issue. Um, but what, what do governments need to do from a legal perspective if... A, a healthy, well-regulated market in, in large-scale project financing for transmission is going to, um, or, or independent um, uh, development of transmission is going to do? What do governments need to do? I mean, again, that, that kind of depends which governments, yes. uh, because every jurisdiction has different uh, laws with respect to their electricity system, but also how you uh, buy, compensate for buying the land, um, and, and uh, there are so many other aspects that are more project finance related. Uh, for example, your ability to convert uh, your currency and to transfer it out of the country is something across the board for any kind of project. Absolutely. Uh, but there are still s 
issues. I mean, you still have issues in, in many countries about these aspects. So if, if you have a transmission asset, you're just adding a few other issues, but you're not solving the other ones necessarily, right? So I think from a regulatory point of view, obviously you need to allow ownership um, for, from, from private company of transmission asset. That being said, it needs to be carefully done, right? Because the difference between a power plant and a transmission asset is that sometimes the transmission asset is so critical that it could be kind of the full grid uh, being affected by that asset being unavailable for X reason. Um, but typically, they already have legislation that allows the government to step in if there is some, some issues. But what you would need to, to look at is the ownership, uh, all the normal uh, challenges that you would have for project, project finance and, and the land uh, acquisition program and how the government can support that phase. So I think these are, to me, if we speak off the cuff, uh, what I would look at. Uh, yeah, the, you also need the law to cater for a revenue stream. Yes. Uh, so sometimes electricity law... And, and that's even a, a problem for storage assets, will only allow a revenue for a generation asset and all, only for a positive generation asset. So a battery can be seen as a generation asset, but normally, I mean, until now, the technology doesn't create electricity within a battery, so it's always a negative output. And if it's a negative output, that means that if the, the, the law does not recognize accessory services or ancillary services, you will not have a revenue stream. The same thing needs to be, uh, to be ensured. Uh, a lot of laws have wheeling charges uh, um, provisions, so that's just something to check. But it kind of depends on which country, because they have a different approach depending on which. We've talked about external things internally. I mean, when the ASLF was, the idea of it was coming up, I can remember being around the African Development Bank hearing discussions, and it seemed a very good idea. Mm -hmm. And I think, speaking independently, it's proved to be a very good idea. Thank um, you. And in terms of um, African capacity, how, how are you now looking? Are you very overstretched? Could you do more people? How, is it growing? How, how's, how's, how, how is the ASLF actually... Yeah. I think, I think our team has been steadily growing. Not I think, actually. Our team has been steadily growing since, uh, since its inception. Uh, but really, I would say 2017, 2018, we really start, started to, to uh, increase our footprint. The pandemic obviously kind of put a, a little bit of a freeze on everything. We were still quite active. A lot of projects, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, were kept on moving. Um, but obviously, it's it's hard to hire in these condi conditions. Yeah. But since uh, I would say early 2022, we kept um, growing the team. So our footprint, the number of projects, is is been has been increasing in in in, uh, in, in recent years. So that comes with challenges. Uh, obviously, the team travels a lot because we are in so many countries. Uh, but it's it's the fun part, right? Yeah, it's uh, sure. You, you want to be in an organization that grows. You want to be in an organization that faces the challenges of more work and not less. Um, so it's been it's been quite a fun ride, and we we see a lot of um, countries appreciating the work. 
and 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 long-lasting relationship with some of our focal points and also just the country in general and also a relationship surviving elections and and change of governments uh, which is a really really good sign so yeah it's it's been quite uh quite impressive uh, as a journey so yeah it's, it's, it's yeah, definitely I'm, I'm, pl- I'm pleased to see it working out because clearly the logic of having an institution that could act as a counterweight to the extraordinary power of, of uh, corporations and their, their corporate lawyers. We love them. This place is filled with them. But the fact is, having a counterweight and starting to be able to do that. And I think, I, you know, I talk to a lot of international corporations. And they are sometimes, genu- or very often genuinely, sometimes disingenuously, they turn around and say, well, actually we could do with there being more support on the other side mm-hmm. so that we can do something. We hear the same. We hear the same because the reality is you want to make sure that you're negotiating with the same understanding of what can be on the table. Right? Yeah. And that's that's often an issue we see. Like there's a lot of governments that want to do well and protect the interest of their their population. Especially if you look at the technical level, like you, we, we find gems every day, like uh, technical government official that really want to make sure that they're striking a good deal for the government and not uh, selling out, uh, uh, quote unquote, uh, the, the, the resources. Um, but to do that, you need to understand what is the playing field and, and to understand what is where you can get value and where you're going to break the deal. Right? And for a government, you can't ask them to be expert in all sectors that their economy covers. So it, it is a bit, uh, I mean, there is definitely a need for them to have advisors. And these advisors come in and tell them, look, for this issue, we believe that's not, that's not even a question of whether the developer will want to agree to it. They can't because they will not be able to raise financing with it. Yeah. So let's focus on this one because this one, you can get value, you can get a better pricing you can reduce uh, some costs. You can ask for a, a related infrastructure for the community around. Like you can do a lot of things to bring value. And and the government is is uh, definitely really happy to be able to see where they can get value. And the, the private developer is comforted in the fact that now we're negotiating on things that everybody can give something, right? Because when they're negotiating on points, they cannot give, not because they don't want to, even if they tell the government, the government is on the other side of the table and for good reason shouldn't take what they say uh, as, as, as a truth and facts because it's a negotiation process. Obviously, you don't lie, but there is a yeah. bit of a bluff always. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's much easier for everyone when they're well supported. It's, it's, it's interesting because at the end of a transaction, I think we almost always get a, a positive feedback from from every party but at the beginning it's always a bit uh, difficult for the private uh, participant because the all of a sudden have a real counterpart and law firms that they've seen uh, or worked with that know how these deals are done and all of a sudden the dynamic changes and and you have a real negotiations but once you pass that phase they understand that everything is going faster and and there is actually a good chance that this project can reach uh, completion and financial points great well thank you very much uh, thank I you very much john yeah, yeah thank you
Welcome to the Let's Talk Energy podcast from EnergyNet. This series was recorded at the Africa Energy Forum 2023 in Nairobi, Kenya. Join us for this and other episodes as we talk to the industry players, stakeholders, and rising stars of Africa's energy sector.